Well, amen, amen. Good morning, church. I hope you're doing well today. Uh, glad you guys are here. We've had an incredible weekend. If you uh, were able to be a part of the Connection Family Weekend, uh, we hope you were encouraged. I know even my wife and I were very encouraged uh, Friday night uh, at the marriage uh, dinner that we had to, to celebrate marriage and to talk a little bit about how to grow in our marriage and, and honoring God in that. And yesterday at the panel with uh, so many uh, awesome couples, uh, excluding Kate and I, we were there. I guess that we were a courtesy ask in the in the panel, but. Uh, I just enjoyed, Kate and I just talked about how much we enjoyed hearing from some of the couples and how they're uh, striving to uh, really see uh, their kids grow in their relationship with God and things that they're doing to do that. And so if you missed that, you definitely missed an incredible opportunity. So definitely hit that next year as we offer that. But if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 is where we'll be. Uh, we've been talking about the resurrection. Uh, we've been walking through the book of 1 Corinthians, as many of you guys have been here and know. Uh, the letter of 1 Corinthians is written to a church in the city of Corinth. And so Paul uh, loved this church. He pastored this church. And so this letter was written, uh, and he handled a ton of different issues with them, questions that they had, situations that they were facing, whether it be sexual immorality, to divisions in the church, to uh, how they meet and gather together in a way that can upbuild and, and build up the faith of other people. And then now he's kind of turned his attention in chapter 15 towards uh, the resurrection. And we talked about last week how uh, the Greek culture had slipped into the church in Corinth and basically began to, uh, they had began to believe a lie about the resurrection, that the resurrection uh, was true spiritually, but was not true physically and bodily. Uh, and so uh, Paul very clearly made the point, if the bodily resurrection didn't happen, then Christ wasn't raised. And if Christ wasn't raised, then our whole faith falls apart because the Christian faith is founded. The gospel itself is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. If Christ didn't rise uh, from the dead, then Paul said our preaching's useless. Our faith is empty. There's no salvation in Christ. And so we're picking up in verse 35 today where Paul is going to turn his attention towards uh, some questions that they had been asking about the resurrection. They're very interesting questions. And as a believer, it is very good to ask these questions. But the way the Corinthians were asking them was not out of belief, but unbelief and questioning and, and questioning whether the uh, how God could raise the dead. And so uh, you'll see Paul condemn it, but I want you to know it's okay for you to ask these questions, and we'll talk about it through that lens. So let's read together, starting in verse 35, 1 Corinthians 15, 35. It says, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. Not all, not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds have another, fish have another. There are also heavenly bodies, and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is of one kind, and the splendor of the earthly bodies is of another. The sun has one kind of splendor, while the moon has another, the stars have another, 
And then the stars differ from stars in splendor. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead? The body that is sown is perishable, but it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, and it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, but it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, then there is also a spiritual body. So what we see Paul doing is he's anticipating questions that they will ask to try to combat his teaching on the resurrection. And those questions will be, how are the dead raised? Like, how are, that's, that's a miracle. And we, may, we should never lose sight of how big of a miracle it is for a dead person to be raised. And then he says, what will our resurrection bodies be like? Can, they can't even imagine. And so it's kind of a sarcastic question of like, what do you mean God's gonna raise the dead? I mean, how do you raise the dead and what are the bodies gonna look like? And uh, for them, the Corinthians' heart weren't right in asking these questions. And so uh, Paul calls them foolish because they were asking out of unbelief as if God needed to defend himself. As if Jesus, in the last chapter, Paul didn't very thoroughly prove that Jesus himself rose from the dead. Why would he not be able to raise us from the dead as well and give us new bodies, heavenly bodies? And so Paul gives them two analogies here from nature to prove that this isn't that weird of an idea. God does this in nature all the time. So first he says it's like a seed being planted in the ground. When you plant a dead seed into the ground, God gives it life and water, and it, when it comes up, it's transformed. Like you plant a little itty-bitty seed, and then it pops up as a, as a corn stalk or an apple tree or all these things, and he says, it's kind of the same principle with the resurrected body. It's that we go, our old bodies are buried like a seed, and then when Christ comes back, he'll raise us up and we'll be transformed into an apple tree, so to speak, uh, in that language. So your earthly body will be transformed into a heavenly body. Secondly, he says, just like God designed and created different kinds of bodies to flourish on earth, he talked about a fish, a human, an animal, all have different kinds of bodies. He says he will design and give us heavenly bodies to flourish in his heavenly kingdom. When we're resurrected, God will design our bodies each differently for the heavenly kingdom. Just like we're designed here to be a part of the church, he designs us then to be a part of his heavenly kingdom. So Paul says our earthly body is sown perishable and in corruption and dishonorable and in weakness as a natural body, but this heavenly body, it will be raised imperishable. It'll be incorruptible. It'll be in glory and in power. And it'll be what he calls a spiritual body. And he goes on in verse 45 and says, so it is written, the first man, Adam, back in Genesis, became a living being. The last Adam, talking about Jesus, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural. And then after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth. Remember, God formed Adam out of the dust of the earth. But the second man is from heaven, as was the earthly man. So are those who are of the earth, and as is the heavenly man. So also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have been born in the image of the earthly man, so we shall bear the image of the heavenly man. So again, next, Paul, to help them make sense of this even more, he brings out a comparison. He compares Adam to Christ, and he says, listen, our earthly bodies are like Adam's body. They were created of the dust of the earth. 
Uh, it was uh, in, in Adam's image. Uh, it was designed for the earth specifically. Uh, it was corrupted by sin. It is corrupted by sin. He calls this the natural body or the flesh as we see it. This body is subject to death. And he says it's alive, but it's just a living being. But our heavenly bodies, on the other hand, our resurrected bodies will be like Jesus' resurrection body, and they will be in his image, and they will be designed for heaven. They won't be corrupted by sin. They will be immortal, and they will be what he calls a life-giving spirit, the same way Christ was post-resurrection. The natural man was designed and could only die, but the spiritual man can, can live and live and, and be life-giving is what he says. Listen to verse 50. He says, I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Our natural bodies now cannot go to heaven. Like we need new bodies because our bodies here aren't designed for heaven, which is why they don't go to heaven. He says, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, because he gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul says our earthly bodies are not fit to inherit the kingdom of God. So what God's going to do is transform, for believers, our earthly bodies into heavenly bodies. And then Paul says he's announcing a mystery. That A mystery in the Bible is something God has hidden but now is going to reveal. And uh, for this, the Old Testament talks about uh, these resurrection bodies, but not this clearly at what and how it's going to happen. And so the mystery is this, that God will suddenly resurrect and transform the earthly body of every believer, dead and alive, into a heavenly body body. Paul talks about this in a little bit more detail in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Let me read it, verses 13 through 18. He gives us a picture of this day. He says, verse 13, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death. That's how the Bible describes uh, bodily death to a believer, is we sleep. Our body sleeps until Christ raised it again. He says, so that you do not grieve like the rest of man mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him, those that have died, according to the Lord's word. We tell you that we who are still alive, who are left, that means you're still living, until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Those who are sleeping in Christ will rise first. Their bodies will come out of the grave. After that, we who are still alive, so we're still on earth when Christ comes back, are left and will be caught up. That word is rapture. That's where you hear the word rapture. We will be raptured up together 
with them, Christ, the dead in Christ, and us who are alive in Christ on the earth, in the clouds to meet the Lord, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So this is an encouraging passage, and it should be encouraged for us as a believers that we do not have to fear death. Paul says death has lost its victory. Death has lost its sting, that Christ, when he died for us, the sting of death was put on him. Christ defeated death on the cross. He raised on the third day to defeat death and to show that we will live in him. He took the sting of death for us. Now, physical death for us is just a pathway to God. That's why you hear Paul talking about death the way he does. His perspective about death, if you've ever read it, is like radical. You know, he's like to live as Christ, to die as gain. Or he says, I count my life worth nothing. Or he says, hey, I'd rather be in heaven with Jesus right now, but I need to stay here so that I can do ministry with you. And it's like, hold on, man, this dude would rather be here than there. And then I find myself all the time like, I really like it here. My family's cool. Like, I have some awesome things. That's because I don't have the view of heaven that Paul had of heaven. And for each of us in this room, it's very important that we understand and have this knowledge in our mind because if we ever feel like it's better on earth than it will be in heaven, we've missed the point. We've missed the point. Our values are mixed up. And so Jesus, uh, physical death for the believer is a pathway to Christ. It's a pathway to heaven. It's where we'll see Christ face to face. We'll experience resurrected bodies. We'll be in our eternal home. There'll be no more sin, no more suffering. And if, when you have that view of heaven, it almost makes you want to die today. Like it really does make you want, like Paul, to go and be with Christ and that's why we see Paul speak in the way that he does. Listen to verse 58. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So Paul says, therefore, he concludes this glorious chapter on the resurrection, the fact that it's true, the fact that God will resurrect our bodies. And he says, since therefore all of this is true and we understand that Christ has defeated death for us and we have a future hope so we don't need to fear death, he says this should produce some fruit in our lives, some characteristics in our life. And he gives us four. He says, steadfastness. That we know the resurrection is true. We know uh, we, we don't fear death and we know that Christ is coming back for us. It should produce a faithfulness in our lives. Like God, we want to live for you. A focus on eternal things, a steadfastness. And then he says, let nothing move you. He says we should be immovable, meaning that there will be things in this world that try to move us off of our focus on Christ. There'll be opposition, there'll be temptation, there'll be things, distractions that try to get our mind off of Christ. And he says, but when we get this glorious truth and reality about heaven and about the truth of the resurrection, it should stay our mind on Christ at all times. And then he goes on to say, always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. He says this truth should produce devotion in our life, that we want to live fully for God. Underline that word fully, not half in, not half out, but devoted to God, knowing his last point, that our labor is not in vain, that it's worth it. Everything we do, every ounce of energy, every ounce of sacrifice, everything we leverage for the sake of heaven, 
for storing up treasures in heaven on this earth is worth it. And that's what he's saying is it should produce an urgency, a faithfulness in our life, a longing to go to heaven, but also a faithfulness in how we live our lives here. Um, Listen to how Tony Evans, one of my favorite pastors, says it. He says, in light of our victory over sin and death, due to our faith in King Jesus, believers are encouraged to labor for the Lord. So make God's kingdom agenda your own agenda. Don't become weary and give up because your labor is not in vain. It's not wasted. You're not spinning your wheels when you engage in faithful kingdom service. God sees your work for him, and he has a reward in store for you that will exceed your wildest expectations. I love that. And so what I want to do today, this chapter is glorious. Listen, I mean, this is the chapter of all the chapters that you need to read every day. I mean, this is an incredible chapter that focuses us on the end. And I do a lot of funerals and, and, and have to preach a lot of funerals. I had to preach my grandma's funeral this past week. And one of the things is I go to this chapter a lot because I'm usually encouraging people that are facing death or have faced death in that. But you as a believer, the, the fruit of this chapter and the, the uh, just truth that's here is just absolutely incredible. And so here's what I want to do with it. I want to draw out three things that I think Paul gives us and I think he's trying to say. The first is this. The certainty of the resurrection. Paul, in this whole chapter, has has basically given us all the evidence to believe that the resurrection is true. It was an event. We can take it to the bank. It did happen. And because of that, Christianity is truth. It's not a feeling. It's not a crutch for people that don't have any that don't that don't have anything else to turn to. No, it is the truth. And Jesus is who he says he is. And so we can live our lives for him and trust his word. Secondly, I wanna talk about what the resurrection will be like. What's it gonna be like uh, when we die? What's it gonna be like when we're in heaven? How's it going to happen? And then lastly, how should the resurrection and the truth about God affect our lives right now? Like what should it produce in our lives, which we talked about a little bit. Here's an easier way to think about it. The first thing I wanna do is take you to your funeral. I want every person in here to imagine that you're going to a funeral and it's your funeral. And then secondly, I wanna take you to heaven and I wanna show you what heaven's gonna be like and what we're gonna be doing, what it looks like. And then I wanna bring you back down to earth and say, hey, because of these two realities, how should it affect, affect our lives today? Does that sound good? All right, here we go. First one, the certainty of the resurrection. So this whole chapter, again, Paul is proving the resurrection. The first half, he's basically said, Scripture predicted the resurrection. We have over 500 eyewitnesses that testify to the resurrection. And then personally, I've seen him, and I know what he's done in my life after he resurrected from the dead. And then he moves on in the second half of chapter 15, and Paul is arguing the certainty of the resurrection. Like, he wants us to understand and believe that Christ will resurrect our bodies to live with him forever. And then he gives us some examples. He says, as sure as a seed that's put in the ground, that's watered into good soil, will pop up and be transformed into some sort of plant, is as sure as the resurrection is going to happen in our lives. He says, as sure as we were born into the world in the image of Adam, we will be born in the next world into the image of Christ. It is a sure thing. As sure as the sun comes up every morning, God is 
faithful. And if he said he's going to resurrect us, then we can take it to the bank that he's going to resurrect us because God has never lied and he's not about to start now. And this is great news for believers because we can now face death with hope. Amen, right? That's exactly right. You guys are not good at amens. Y'all need to get there. Let me take you uh, to your funeral for a minute. Maybe you can amen at your funeral. You won't be able to in the real world, but today you can't. So let me take you there for just a minute. I want you to imagine with me you've died, and uh, you're, we're going to your funeral. If you can't imagine that, then let's imagine somebody that you love closely that has died. In that moment, two things matter tremendously. At your funeral, two things matter. One is our belief in the resurrection matters. It matters tremendously what you believe about the resurrection, and not just even what we believe, but what the truth is about the resurrection that Jesus says. Two, what matters is our salvation. Like it matters when we die if we know God or not. Our eternity is based on whether we have been saved and received Christ at that. And so those two things matter. And because if we are a true believer, death has lost its power and its sting. So our funeral then becomes a celebration. And you and I, both of us have been to funerals. And listen, Funerals of believers are celebrations. Like there may be some tears shed, but at the end of the day, there is a celebration and those people are looking down on us now and saying, why are y'all crying? Like I'm where I wanted to be the whole time. But we've also been to funerals where maybe someone claimed that they were a Christian, but there's no evidence in their life. And we don't know if they're saved or not. Those are the hardest funerals for me because I, I, don't, I don't know. Like, I, I can't make promises that I don't know are true. Like, that would be lying. And so it's important that we are truly Christians, specifically when we face death. And if I'm officiating the, the, the funeral of a believer that I know was saved and they produce the fruit of a genuine Christian, then listen, it's gonna be a celebration. Listen, I'm gonna read 1 Thessalonians 4 and we're gonna talk about how Christ is gonna raise the dead and meet him in the sky and we're coming back as the Lord's army, yes sir, and coming back and, and setting up heaven on earth. And I'm gonna read to you John chapter 14 and we're gonna talk about how Christ went and prepared a place for you. The Father's house has many rooms. One of those rooms is for you and it's gonna be awesome. And I'm gonna talk to you about Romans 8 where nothing can separate us from the love of God, not death, not principle not suffering sickness, none of that stuff. And then I'm gonna read 1 Corinthians 15 and we're gonna talk about the resurrection is a truth, it is sure, it is certain, and we can take it to the bank. Like this is the type of funeral that every person in this room wants. Every person is a celebration where we can face it, but we don't have to wait till our funeral to celebrate it. Like we can live every life knowing that Christ has defeated death in our place. Now, don't get me wrong. We will probably be sad at your funeral. Like, I love you, and, and that you have people that love you, and we will be sad because we're gonna miss you on this earth. But if you're a Christian, our tears are tears of joy because we know that death is not goodbye. Like, death is, we'll see you later. We'll see you in a little bit. There'll be a heavenly reunion and the truth of the reality is for believers, earth has no sorrow that heaven won't heal. And if it, for believers, death is not the end. It is a pathway to Christ, to heaven, to, to where we've always wanted to be. It's not goodbye, it's see you later. 
So let me ask you a, a very personal question. When you think about death, what comes to your mind? Like, like is, is there fear? Is it, is it, has death truly lost its sting in your life? Like, it, it is a sin to fear death because Christ defeated death. Don't give the devil victory in something that he's already been defeated for. Like, believe Christ. Believe the words that Christ has put. This is why this passage is so encouraging. Don't put a question mark where Christ has put an exclamation point. It's Christ is clear. The resurrection is certain. We don't have to fear death. We can face death with great hope. Listen to John MacArthur and other pastors. He talks about this. He says, believers should long for heaven. Like a prisoner longs for freedom. Like a sick man longs for health. Like a hungry man longs for food. Like a thirsty man longs for drink. Like a poor man longs for a payday. Like a soldier longs for peace. Hope and courage in facing death is the last opportunity for Christians to exhibit their faith in God. To prove their hope of heaven is genuine and to adorn their confidence in the promises of God. So we as Christians need to build our lives on the foundation and the certainty of the resurrection. Even in the face of death, it gives us great hope and great encouragement. Secondly, what will the resurrection be like? So this chapter brings up lots of questions, and I get these questions all the time. I'm just gonna hit the three that I think most come to me. Number one, what happens when we die? Number two, what will our bodies be like in heaven? What will heaven be like is number three. And so let me take you to heaven for a minute. Let's talk about it. Number one, what happens when we die? Well, first, for the believer in Jesus Christ, our soul will immediately be with Jesus. Immediately will be with Jesus. Second Corinthians 5, 8, death is to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So our soul, when we die, goes to be at home with the Lord. Our body stays. Listen, however, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians 4, teach us that believers will be resurrected and given glorified bodies at a later time, when Christ comes back specifically. It seems that while souls, uh, the souls of, and spirits of believers go to be with Christ immediately after death, the physical body remains in the grave sleeping. Now, there's some bad theology on this out there. This is not our soul sleeping. It's our body is sleeping. Our soul is more alive than ever, right? And so we need to understand that. At the resurrection of believers, the physical body is resurrected, it's glorified, and then it'll be united with the soul and the spirit. And then this reunited and glorified body, soul and spirit, all together will be the possession of believers for eternity in the new heaven and the new earth, which we see coming out of heaven onto earth in Revelation 21 and 22. So this is great hope. This is what we believe as Christians about death and what will happen. But you can't talk about death for a believer without talking about death for an unbeliever. So let's talk about those that do not receive Christ as their Lord and Savior. And for them, death means everlasting punishment. However, similar to the destiny of believers, unbelievers also seem to be sent immediately to a temporary holding place to await their final resurrection and judgment 
and eternal destiny. Listen to Luke chapter 16, 22 and 23. It describes a rich man being tormented immediately after death. Revelation 20, verse 11 through 15, describes all the unbelieving dead being resurrected, so saved and unsaved, and judged at the great white throne judgment, and then the unbelievers are cast into the lake of fire. So unbelievers then are not sent to hell, the lake of fire, immediately after death, but rather are in a temporary realm of judgment and condemnation. However, even though unbelievers are not instantly sent to the lake of fire, their immediate fate after death is not a pleasant one. Remember, in Luke 16, the rich man cried out, I am in agony in this fire. And so even where they go immediately, there is agony and there is fire. And so we need to understand if we're in the room as an unbeliever, that the reason Christ has not come back today is because he's given you an opportunity to not go there. He's given you an opportunity to be saved, to believe in Christ, to surrender your life to him as your Lord and your Savior. Savior. And so the conclusion for believers is this. Death, and then our spirit goes to be with Jesus in heaven, our soul. Our bodies will be buried on earth or cremated, whatever you wanna do. And then Christ will come back for his people out of heaven our souls at that point will reunite with our glorified bodies and these will be our glorified bodies and we will be with Christ in the new heaven and the new earth and come down and reign on earth in a Garden of Eden type world where there's no sin, no sickness, none of that stuff. So that's, that's what happens when you die. Secondly, what will our resurrected bodies be like? So 1 Corinthians 15 teaches us a lot about this. It's important that we get this. Uh, Paul says that our heavenly bodies will be different than our natural bodies, the body we're in now. There will be some stark contrast between the two. Paul describes our earthly bodies as perishable, dishonorable, and weak, and, and, they're, and they're all uh, sinful. But he says he describes our heavenly bodies as immortal, imperishable, honorable, and powerful. Let's explain each of those things. Heavenly body, meaning just as our earthly bodies are perfectly suited for life on earth, our resurrected bodies will be perfectly suited for life in eternity. Imperishable body, meaning we will no longer suffer from disease, sickness, or death, nor will we ever be subject to heat or cold or hunger or thirst any longer. Honorable body, meaning we will not be guilty or shameful because of sin. When Adam and Eve first sinned, the first thing they did was felt guilt and shame and tried to cover their nakedness. We will be pure in our glorified bodies, undefined by sin. Revelation 3 says, literally, we will be clothed in white garments, meaning we will be holy and blameless as Christ has made us to be here. Powerful body, meaning our glorified bodies will be empowered by the Spirit, and it will own us, and weakness will be no more. Our bodies will not experience any kind of weakness. Immortal body, meaning our resurrected bodies will no longer be natural bodies, subject to decay or death. We will have victory and live in victory over sin and death forever. The easiest way for me to think about this and really explain it is our bodies will be like Jesus's resurrected body. You know, when Jesus died, he resurrected. He was the first fruit. He was the first resurrected body. And then we will be uh, after him. And so what do we know about Jesus's resurrected body? Well, if you go read Luke 24, you learn a lot. He was recognizable, 
right? So they recognized it. It took them a little while to figure out who he was, uh, but eventually they did. So uh, he had his same personality, uh, so, so to speak. It was there. Uh, he had knowledge of, of what happened before the resurrection. He had memories uh, that happened before the resurrection. So he had scars in his hand. So he knew that he had been crucified. Uh, he had relationships because the first place he went was to the disciples. He knew where to go to the upper room to find the disciples. So he knew places. Uh, so, so we don't forget. Um, he, will be, uh, he was able to talk. Uh, he talked to people. Uh, he was able to eat. Uh, he was able to be touched and touch others. Uh, he was able to walk through walls, which is kind of cool. Uh, we'll experience that. Uh, he was able to ascend to heaven, right? Not that we'll need to ascend to heaven, but if we do, we can. Like, I mean, who needs an airplane? Um, most importantly, uh, perfectly, at that when we have our glorified body, we will bear the image of God. Like, we will be in his likeness perfectly. We will reflect his character perfectly. We will glorify God as an image bearer, which is what we're created to do now, but we have to fight to do it because sin has marred us up so bad. And so we will perfectly glorify God as a perfect image bearer. There'll be no more sin, no more struggle, no more pain, no more hurts, no more battles, no more personality problems, no more depression, no more stress, no more anxiety. We will be like Jesus. Doesn't that just make you want to shout hallelujah, amen? I mean, my heavens, if y'all can't amen this sermon, uh, then, then you're missing it. This is who we are. This is what's happening. This is incredible, which goes to the third one. Then what's heaven going to be like? Well, Heaven is a real place described in the Bible. The word heaven is used and found 276 times in the New Testament alone. The Old Testament talks about it a little bit too. Scripture actually refers to three heavens. I bet you didn't know that, did you? The Apostle Paul says, I was called up to the third heaven, but he was prohibited from revealing what he experienced in that third heaven. God doesn't want us to know yet. If a third heaven exists, then there must be two other heavens. So that'll, that'll blow your mind. Well, in the Bible, the first heaven is most frequently referred to in the Old Testament, and it's the sky, basically where the birds uh, fly around, clouds and birds and all that exist, right? The expanse that God created. The second heaven is the outer space or the interstellar, uh, which is where Genesis 1 is pretty clear about that, where the stars and the planets and everything else uh, is, is housed there. But then the third heaven and this location is never given to us or revealed to us, is the dwelling place of God. Wherever he is, that's where heaven is. And so that's what we know about heaven. This is the place that Jesus talks about in John 14, where he says, do not be troubled. I'm going to prepare a place for you, my Father's house. Where he is, there are many rooms. And then in Revelation 21 and 22, God tells John that there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. So heaven will come out of the space, out of, I say the space, we don't know where it's at, wherever it's at, and it'll come down to earth. And so listen to John's uh, vision in Revelation 21 about this. Too good not to read. Here we go. Verse 1. Revelation 21. Verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. There'd be no, no sea there. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. He explains it as a city. Prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. So again, there will be no human marriage in heaven, but there will be a marriage between God and his church. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, 
God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them, and he will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And everybody said, amen. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. You can take it to the bank. He said to me, it is done. I'm the Alpha, I'm the Omega, I'm the beginning, I'm the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. And those who are victorious will inherit all of this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. Praise God. And then he goes on to say, you can continue to read Revelation 21 and 22. He goes on to say, this city is filled with brilliance, costly stones and crystal clear jasper. Uh, the believers there will be from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. There'll be diversity and we'll all worship God together in, in perfect fellowship. There will be no night and the Lord himself is the light. The sun and the moon are no longer needed because God will be the light. Isaiah says that we will enjoy relationships with one another. There'll be banquets and we'll eat together. And uh, Isaiah even goes so far to say, We'll get to eat a meal prepared by God himself, which will be the choicest of meats and the finest of wines, unless you're a Baptist and they'll put you in the other room. And the paradise, and then he goes on to say, the paradise of the Garden of Eden will be restored. The river of the water of life flows freely and the tree of life is available once again, yielding fruit monthly with leaves that heal the nation. So it, it'll, it'll come back to the way it was in the beginning before sin was there. Like the garden, God will delegate the rule of his creation to us and we will reign with him over his new creation. Meaning it won't just be a worship service all the time, but it will be a worship service all the time. We'll have things to do, places to go, people to see, all of which will be worshiped to him. Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. According to Revelation, heaven will be a place of no mores. There will be no more tears, no more pain, no more sorrow. There will be no more separation because death will be conquered once and for all. And the best, the best, the best thing about heaven is that the presence of our Lord and Savior will be there. We will, be, we will get to see him face to face. We'll be face to face with the Lamb of God who loved us and sacrificed himself so that we can enjoy his presence for, in heaven for eternity. What a day of rejoicing that's gonna be. This is why the Bible ends with God saying, yes, I am coming soon. And all the believers respond back and say, amen, come Lord Jesus, because we long for this day. We can't wait for this day. I mean, sometimes in the Christian faith, you, you just feel weird because you're talking to somebody you can't see. You, 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 you hear his voice, but you just want to know him and see him. God, what would you do? How would you, what would you do and respond in this situation? And you can't see him, and it's just frustrating in some ways, but it won't be anymore. Like, we'll be with him face-to-face, -face, talking like uh, Moses did, face-to-face -face with him. It's an incredible thing. And then Paul moves on to number three, and he says, how should the resurrection affect our lives now? Based on the truth of the resurrection and the truth of our resurrected bodies, 
on these two things, how should this affect how we live now? We've gone to your funeral, we've gone to heaven, now we're coming back down to earth right now. How should all of this affect us? Paul says belief in the resurrection should change how we live our lives should change it. He gives us four examples, four things specifically, four fruits that should be produced in our life. We should stand firm, knowing that what we're standing on is not a feeling, it is the truth. Like it is as clear as Christ resurrected from the dead, he's conquered death, he will resurrect our bodies, we don't have to fear death, and because of that, we can stand firm in our faith. We should be immovable, he says. So that when lies come and try to distract us, or when the enemy comes and tries to steal, kill, and destroy our faith, when suffering comes to try to knock us down, we should be immovable. We should be focused on the Lord and what he has to say, not about what everybody else is saying and not definitely not what the enemy is trying to lie to you about. He says we should fully devote ourselves to God's work what is God's work? Making disciples of all nations. We should, we should live our lives on mission for God, loving him, loving other people, devoted to his word, devoted to prayer, devoted in our relationship with God, remembering that our labor is not in vain. Every ounce, every sacrifice that we've made will be worth it. I call this living for the return of Jesus, living for the words, well done, good and faithful servant. This is what Jesus talked about in his parable. He said that when Jesus comes back, and this is very true, and this is really where I wanna close, if Jesus came back today, where would he find you? Like, like what would he find you doing? Like, if you stood before God today, would you hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant, or the other people that weren't living for God heard, depart from me, you wicked and lazy servant, I never knew you, right? There's really only two categories that we can find ourselves in. And the good news of the gospel is that you can move from the wicked and lazy servant who doesn't know God into the other category today. Like today's the salvation. God's given you an opportunity to experience resurrection life, to experience salvation, to no longer have to fear death. But if you're in this category, then you should fear death. And you should know that God loves you and has a purpose for your life. And he doesn't just want to save you to deliver you from hell, which is a huge part of it. But he wants to, to know you and to walk with you in relationship. And he has a purpose for your life now. And that purpose is, is to use you for his glory in the world today. And you can walk through life knowing that he's got your back. And this is what he wants for you. So would he find you? And describe your life with the characteristics that Paul says. Immovable, steadfastness, fully devoted. Like living your life as if your work for the Lord, nothing you do is in vain. Would, would that describe how God would find you? So right where you're at right now, I just want you to bow your head. Listen, I know anytime you talk about death, it's the ultimate sobering reality. And Christ tells us in the book of Psalms, to number our days so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. So it's not always a bad thing to think about death. 
Like when we think about death, the things that should matter in our life start to come to the surface. And it enables us to make decisions in our life that are good decisions. And so as you think about today, and you think about standing before God, what is the decision that you need to make based on that day? And I pray that God would give you the courage to make it. For some of us in this room, that decision salvation. It is clear. We do not have a relationship with God. We're not living for God. We're living for ourselves, and we're doing our own thing. Well, today, I pray that you would have the courage to say, God, I don't want to live for myself anymore. I want to live for you. And listen, if you're in that room, if you're in the room today, and that's you, Man, I want to pray for you. We want to celebrate with you. We want to give you resources. We want to help you. We want to come alongside of you. But you got to be bold. And I'm going to ask you to be bold. If that's you, would you just lift your hand right now? You'd say, Billy, that's me. Today's the day of salvation. I want to know God. I want to be with God forever. But anybody in the room, you'd raise your hand. I'll give you a second. And for the rest of us, standing before God is not just a judgment of heaven or hell. It also is a reality that, that, as Paul says, moves us and shapes us and shapes the way we live our lives. And so maybe you're here today and you say, Billy, I haven't lived fully devoted to God. Now, we're not talking about does God love you? God loves you based on Christ, but your life and in this process of growing, you've kind of let off the gas. Well, today would be a reminder to say don't lose focus. Be steadfast. Be immovable. And live your life fully devoted to God. So let's pray. Father, that's my heart this morning. God, would, would you move us as a church? God, would we live in light of the resurrection? God, would we live lives of devotion? God, lives of urgency. God, lives of great peace, not fearing death, but knowing that death is a pathway to get us to you. So would we leverage everything we have? for the sake of your great commission and for the sake of living for you. So God, do what only you can do in our hearts today. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. Would you stand and sing?